6. Verse 19 is where we left off last Sunday, and we will pick it up. I hope you catch the pattern of what we're doing here. If you, uh, if you come to church two weeks in a row, you might figure out where we're going to be the third week. And I'm encourage you to either read what we just studied or to read ahead and, and get familiar with it. You're some, sometimes we're trying to figure out, what do I read? I'm supposed to read the Bible. What do I read? Well, read what we just read and with a new understanding or read what we're going to read and, and try to start figuring it out and, and just immerse yourself. I think I've read this passage about a hundred times uh, just in the past couple of weeks trying to really grab it. And it's amazing what you miss the first ten times. And what finally stands out to you uh, after it seems like many, many times, many times past necessary, but then all of a sudden something stands out and it makes makes a, an impact. It doesn't take very long to be a Christian before you recognize the struggle within you. We all deal with it. Though we have a new life in Christ, we still have sin and worldly desires present within us. There's a battle, as the Bible describes this, as a, a, the battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's a battle between the desires of what I want, my flesh, versus God's desires. Paul called it the body of this death. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? It's a struggle between what I want to do and what God tells me to do. Just because I became a Christian doesn't mean that my will is completely eradicated. Each one of us must wrestle with this question, how am I going to live my life? We've seen in the previous passages that Jesus is very interested in how we live our lives. And we've seen it in the form of righteousness that it is displayed in particularly in chapter 6, in these three pillars of, of religion. What I hope you've caught over the last few weeks in, as we've studied these things is that spiritual activity is not Jesus' primary focus. He's not so much interested in what we do as, as much as the motivation behind what we do. Yes, Jesus cares about what you do. But more than that, He cares about what we do and why we do it. As we saw last week with hypocrites and heathen, anybody can do spiritual activity. Anybody can practice spiritual behavior. Don't think that just because people come to church that they're Christian, just because they own a Bible, or because they know a lot about it means that they're a Christian. Anybody can practice spiritual behaviors. We saw last week in particular, anybody can pray. But the motivation behind that prayer is what makes all the difference. Now, as we move into verse 19, the focus of this motivation is still the same. That doesn't change. It's still about motivation, but it will begin to speak in broader terms regarding our everyday lives. One of the Bibles that I use throughout the week to study is a study Bible, and it's got a little note above this paragraph, and it says that the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven works out in the details of one's personal life. The kind of teaching that we find in the passage today directs those of us who say we follow Jesus 
to compare our profession with our behavior. It's teaching like this that helps us to identify or recognize if, in fact, we are guilty of saying something publicly and yet living something entirely different privately. Because remember, Christianity is more than what you say or do. It's more than a list of positive and negative behaviors. Following Jesus is about being completely changed. Not just on the outside. Not just in your behavior and your actions, but on the inside. Working its way outward. And then, living differently because of a radical change. Now in this passage, we find that there are three primary truths that will be helpful for us to remember them with uh, one simple question, and that's how you see it there in your outline. And as we consider these questions, and then, oh, I'm sorry, as we, consider, as we consider what Jesus said and try to answer these questions, I hope it will help you, I hope it will help me to identify the condition of our hearts and our minds and then move us to make positive change and really make progress in what we call sanctification. So let's look at these these uh, question, or these uh, passages here. The first passage in, in, uh, begins in verse number 19 and it goes down to verse 21. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. It's a bit of a tongue twister right there if you don't say it very specifically. And where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus begins with the instruction that we not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. This phrase, lay up treasures or lay not up treasures, is actually made up of the same word used in two different forms. It's a a verb. The word is used as a verb and it's used as a noun. Another way that we could say it is to treasure up treasure or to not treasure up treasure. That's what he's saying. Now, treasure is not just money. We often think of, in this passage, we, 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 I think we automatically default to wealth and money, and it's definitely included in that, but it goes beyond finances. When we think of treasure, we might think of a buried pirate's chest with Spanish doubloons or with, a, with an X on the map that marks the spot in the sand or Maybe you think of uh, some Aladdin's cave that's filled with uh, treasures of all kinds, with gold and jewels and priceless uh, artifacts and rubies and gems. Really, treasure is anything that we value. It's any prized possession that we consider valuable and worthy of our time and investment. Jesus warns us here not to lay up treasures on earth. That is to say, Do not treasure up treasures on earth. As one preacher wrote about this, uh, this is really all the command that we should need. This simple instruction. Don't lay up treasures in heaven, or don't lay up treasures on earth, but rather lay up treasures in heaven. That should be all we need. He is the king. He is the master. He gets to tell us what to do, and it is ours to obey. And that's really all we should need. But he gives us further explanation. He gives us illustration. And it's all in mercy and grace that He teaches us why 
we should not lay up treasures in the wrong places. He says that earthly treasure is vulnerable to loss and to decay. It can be ruined or wasted. He says beginning there that earthly treasure can become moth-eaten and rusted. Imagine someone who obtains a priceless treasure and cherishes it above all his other possessions. He decides that it must be preserved for the future, so he hides it away, anticipating its sustained or even increased value over time. Only later to find and discover his treasure has been rendered completely worthless by the circumstances. It's still a treasure, kind of. It's still there. It's where he left it. He opens that big chest and pulls out that priceless treasure only to find it riddled with holes or eaten up with rust. It's still the object, but it's no longer a treasure. It's ruined. That's what Jesus is saying here. This man now has nothing to show for his time or effort in his investment. And this devaluing didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually and completely unaware to the owner. But over time, treasure became rubbish. The treasured object is still there, but as I said, it's no longer treasure, no longer holds value. He didn't lose the object, but he did lose his treasure. When Jesus speaks of treasures being moth-eaten, I think of like a valuable fur coat. I don't know if you have fur coats or where you feel about fur coats. A leather jacket, maybe. A nice leather jacket. Think about maybe even a priceless oriental rug. You know, something that is, that is, uh, that is just very valuable and just not even for everyday use. And these are the things that we, we try to take care of and we, we pr- try to protect them. And so we put them, we put them away and out of, out of, out of use and out of the everyday traffic so that they won't get handled and, and, and messed up. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, finding one day that, that it's different. When I think of a rusted treasure, I automatically think of a car. Now, some of you have nice, uh, nice collector's vehicles. Think about someone with a classic car in their garage. They spend countless hours and invest piles and piles and piles of cash into making this car, a motorcycle, or whatever it may be, just mint. You know what I'm talking about? Just perfect. They baby it. They care for it like nothing else that they possess. That is their most prized possession. The paint is shiny. The chrome is polished. You can use it as a mirror. The interior is flawless. And then one day, the owner's worst fears are realized. Due to uh, weather, exposure to weather, Maybe the road conditions or the negligence of another driver. What became, what was my baby and what was my most prized possession either gradually or quite suddenly becomes nothing more than a heap of metal. I remember watching a show. I like to watch those, uh, <clears throat> those shows sometimes where they, they take old cars and they fix them up and restore them. And I remember watching this one show and this one episode where they, they got this car just perfect. I mean, they took this thing from nothing. And they made it perfect. And they were driving it. You know how they have to show it driving around on the show, on the TV show to make, you know, give it that little oomph. 
and someone hit that car while they were driving it. Uh, no insurance on it. They, have, they had, uh, were going to sell it to somebody else, and now they have a bucket of bolts, really. That's all they have. That's really what rusty treasure ends up becoming. It's still a car, but it's totaled on the side of the road, or its panels have rusted through, or the floor has fallen out. What was someone's pride and joy displayed in the garage or in the driveway for even more eyes to see has become fit only for the scrap pile. When I was young, I'm not, I'm not uh, old enough or rich enough to be a card, car collector, but when I was young, I was a card collector. Uh, anybody uh, collect baseball cards or basketball cards or football cards when you were a kid? A few of us. I loved my card collection. I had a pretty good one. I still have it. Uh, I don't think it's as good as, as I thought it was, though. But when I was, bi- when I was little, that was big to me. Big to all my friends. And any time I had a little bit of money, I spent it on a pack of cards. Not to get the stale bubblegum that was inside it, but to unlock some treasure. If you ever collected cards, you know what I mean. You thought that that $1.50 would turn into a Mickey Mantle rookie card. And there was that hope uh, every single time that it's going to be something. And then you, you go through these cards and you realize, I don't know who any of these guys are. And what's really sad is when you discard them and then find out Mickey Mantle was unknown at one point in his life. And you think, you know, I think I used to have one. Or you go back, uh, some of you might remember sticking those what are now priceless uh, trading cards in between your bicycle uh, spokes so that you could get that foot, 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 foot noise while you rode, only to realize that every foot, 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 foot was you losing money. You didn't realize the value. For me, I would collect catalogs that told me how much my cards would be worth. And I would spend hours sitting in my room with all my cards out, and I'd be looking through the catalog trying to figure out how much it was worth today and, and figuring out how much it would be worth in the future. One day I'll pass this down to my son, and it will be worth millions. And then hopefully he'll save them. And a hundred years from now, he'll have a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball card or a Michael Jordan basketball card that is worth uh, enough to retire on. All because dad invested a little bit of time and a little bit of money. I bought plastic sleeves and binders to protect these guys. My most favorite cards, Reggie Miller was my favorite uh, basketball player, and, and he got special attention, he was put into hard plastic cases. Not the soft plastic sleeves, but hard plastic cases. I have a a Michael Jordan baseball card. And I think that was probably my most valuable one at the time. It was probably maybe worth 20 bucks. But I I protected that one in hard plastic that I didn't want it to get messed up. Because if you've ever collected cards, you know that the worst thing that can happen to a card is for those little corners to get a little frayed, for someone to fold it, crease it, get a smudge on it, because you instantly devalue that card. And so I treasured my treasure and did my best to keep it protected. Now, none of these things might be your treasure. You might not be interested in cars. I know some of you are. You might not be interested in cards. I'm not anymore. But I, I, get, I, I bet that you do have a, a treasure. I bet there's something like that that grabs your attention and draws you in. And whatever that thing is, That's your treasure. We value it. We do all we can to protect it. But the problem with the treasures of earth is that ultimately, these things can be consumed, become empty, hollow pieces of junk. 
But Jesus also said not only can treasure be corrupted or decayed, but it can be stolen. Thieves who value my treasure as much as I do come in without my knowledge and steal away what is important to me. In this case, the treasure is not devalued. It's still worth as much as it always was, but it's completely gone. At least with the moth-eaten treasure, I have part of it. Even though it's worthless, now it's completely gone. Have you ever had something stolen from you? When I was in Bible college, someone stole my Bible. It had my name on the front, and it was gone. Someone went in another time and stole all my suits. I didn't lock my door to my dorm room. I thought, we're all Christians here. And I walk in one day, all my suits were gone but one. And I'm like, well, at least he, he left me something. Uh, that was, I, I was frustrated. That was, that was important to me. And when my treasure is gone, I have nothing to show for it. And as with the moth-eaten and rusted treasure, what I thought was safe and secure now has vanished. When discovery is made of these lost and ruined treasures, it kind of marks the end of a time of, of waste. It marks the end of a wasted time because I think about all the work and all the effort and all the time and money that was invested and now I have absolutely nothing to show for it. No refunds, no replacements, no reimbursements, no do-overs. You have nothing but a memory. And even if our earthly treasures are not ruined or stolen, they will be left behind. You don't get to take it with you. Never has a hearse pull the trailer. And even if it did, it's not like it's going anywhere with you. That's going to be left behind for another person. Solomon one time even wrote in Ecclesiastes, uh, he had focused so much on earthly treasures only to call it emptiness and vanity. He, at one point he said, I hated all my labor because I realized I would one day leave all my treasure to some other guy and he might be a fool and waste it all. Everything that I worked so hard for. And he, over and over again, he finds that all of his treasure is empty. These earthly treasures are not forever. They will not last. Ultimately, laying up treasures on earth or treasuring the treasures of earth means that I'm living for this life. It shows that I'm attached to the things of this world. But it also means that I'm living for something that will eventually be decayed or be taken away or lost. One day it will mean nothing. Now, by contrast, heavenly treasures are the opposite. They can never be ruined. They can never be lost. They can never be stolen. They will never become worthless they are what we can say untouchable and impregnable. That means we'll always have them. And they will never come to an end. They are forever and eternally worthwhile. So the first question to ask ourselves in trying to grasp this truth is, what do I treasure? Do you treasure the treasures of earth? Or is your treasure in heaven? There's certainly nothing wrong with having nice things. We'll try to address that topic a little bit tonight if you can if you can uh, be here for that god certainly blesses us and 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 paul wrote uh, in first timothy that he gives us richly gives us all things to enjoy there's nothing wrong with having nice things there's nothing wrong with having money there's nothing sinful about being wealthy most of us we don't have to worry about that though we're just going to live on in mediocrity as far as our finances go but the point that Jesus wants to make is that He doesn't want us to seek after wealth. 
or any other earthly treasure. He wants us to be detached from the worldly, temporary concerns of life. Jesus said there at the end of that passage there, our hearts will be wherever our treasure is. Now your heart is your whole being. It's not the pumping organ inside your chest. It's your whole, it's your, your whole person. It's your whole self. It's your, it's your emotions. It's the center of your desires and your passions. Treasuring treasure on earth means that my heart, my passions, are fixed on earthly matters. Treasuring things in heaven then means that I desire what is heavenly, godly, and eternal. Jesus makes no, no, uh, no other option here but to say that we will be consumed with whatever we treasure. So we have to ask ourselves, what do I treasure? What consumes me? Where are my passions? The second question we would ask ourselves as we look at the next two verses in verse 22, it says, the light of the body is the eye. And therefore, if thine eye be single, thy whole body will be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore that light that is in thee be darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus goes on to say here that the eye is the lamp of the body. Not that it is the eye as the source of light. The eye does not provide light in and of itself, but rather it is the deliverer of light to my body. And the eye is what allows a person to see. And Jesus is clear here to say that the condition of my eye is going to affect my entire body. So that means that whatever I see or whatever has my attention will either fill my body with light or fill it with darkness. And notice, not just darkness, but great darkness. If my eye is good, we see it here single or healthy, I will see light and my whole body will be filled with light. If my eye is bad or unhealthy, then I will see, then what I see will fill my body with darkness. And notice what Jesus says, that if the light in you is darkness, how, how great that darkness is, that the light, what is, whatever is light to you is actually darkness. It's not just darkness, it's great darkness. The idea of having a single eye or a good eye means that I'm focused on just one thing. I have a singleness of purpose. And my focus will affect everything else about me. So the question to ask ourselves here is, what do I see? First, what do I treasure? But what do I see? What has my attention? Am I focused on the treasures of earth? Am I focused on the things of this world? The temporary, fleeting pleasures of life? Or is my eye single and healthy, focused on the light? True treasures of heaven. Friend, as the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim. What am I looking at? What do I see? Number three is the last verse. Possibly the most familiar of this whole passage here. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We come to what is a very familiar verse for most of us. Jesus says that you cannot serve two masters. The implication here is that we all do serve a master of some sort. We all serve a master. 
But he says you can't serve two. We are servants, more specifically here, slaves to someone or something. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 6. He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Verse 20 says, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and having become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and everlasting life. We're either the servant of one or the other, he says there. We are all somebody's servant. We all have a master. And Jesus says here, you cannot serve two masters for in trying to do so, please neither one. Now notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying choose who your master will be. Because as his followers, as Christians, that decision has already been made. We, as Paul describes in Romans 6, already have a master who is Christ. We already belong to him. Paul wrote that we have been bought with a price and that we are not our own. Therefore, he says, we ought to glorify God in our body and our spirit because they are his. We belong to God and therefore we should serve him. And so Jesus is not telling us to choose whom we will serve, but he's reminding us that we cannot serve God and something else. Now, the other challenger here is this word mammon. Mammon is a peculiar word. It really isn't uh, isn't used often, but it it really means wealth or riches. Uh, Money is is a good way to describe it, but it really encompasses uh, more than just the dollars and cents in your bank. Jesus is saying here that I am the servant of whatever I treasure. You see the pattern that he's, that he's building on here. I am the servant now of whatever I treasure, whatever I see. Now these two potential masters, God and wealth, are so contrary to one another that it is impossible to serve and please both of them. God says, you can't properly serve me if you're trying to serve anything else. And these are not the same type of people. If you go back to Joshua 24.15 in your mind and you think about when Joshua made that great statement, choose you this day whom you will serve. Those people were told to choose only because they believed it was evil to serve the Lord. If you back it up in the verse, he says, if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose whom you will serve. And the options that he gave were not God. It was the gods that you served on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites. He was saying, if you think it's wrong to serve God, then choose. But as Christians, that choice has already been made. We serve Christ. No, I don't think these are people who intentionally neglect God in order to chase after money. I think they're trying to do both. I think we're trying to serve both. I think most Christians today don't purposefully reject God to go after earthly treasure. Now, maybe some do, but even that intentional rejection really reveals a heart that is not truly Christian. I think that most Christians today have somehow bought the lie that it is possible to truly serve God and to truly keep God happy and at the same time serve the money as well. Make a little bit for myself on the side. I can do both. I can work two jobs 
Why can't I serve two masters? But it's not the way. Jesus says you can't do it. And the master money might say, sure, you can split loyalties. But God says you cannot do it. If you're going to serve me, you cannot do it anywhere else. But notice what Jesus says. This is how he describes this service there. Either you will uh, hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to the one and despise the other. Jesus says that to love one master means to hate the other one. It's by default. When you love the one, you default to hating the other one. The other part there, to devote yourself to the one, means that you despise or look down on the other one. These are so extreme that you can't divide the loyalty. You can't, well, I love you and you. I love ice cream that's chocolate, and I love ice cream that's strawberry, and so I can love both. Jesus says you can't. Uh, guys, what would your wife say about that? Well, I do love you, but I also love my old girlfriend too. No, there's no divided loyalties here. You choose one or the other, and really, the choice is not to be made now. It was already made at the altar. And that's what Christ is saying here. The choice has already been made. Stop trying to find middle ground. As followers of Jesus, we must wholeheartedly serve God and love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. If we put a percentage on that, that's 100%. Not 99%. Not 99.999%. Like antibacterial soap. Gets rid of almost all, pretty much all. That's not how we're to love God. We are to love Him with our whole self. With our whole being. So the question then, To which master am I devoted? Don't ask yourself, whom do you serve? Ask yourself, to whom am I devoted? Remember that being devoted to one means to despise or look down on the other. So, in asking myself or in answering the question, which master do I serve? I'm also answering the question, which master do I despise? Which master do I hold in No esteem at all. Ultimately, we see here that Jesus is requiring a body and a mind and a spirit that is completely devoted to God. So, in conclusion, who we are will be revealed by what we treasure. Whom we serve is displayed by what consumes us. Now, this passage is not teaching Christians to start stocking up for their heavenly existence. Start putting money up there and sending building materials up there as if the more you do down here, the bigger the mansion you're going to have or you're going to live in a shack uh, if you don't. It is not teaching us how to have a more comfortable life for ourselves one day. The passage here is teaching us to live and to treasure that which is eternal and that which is worthwhile. When I treasure the things of heaven when I value the things that God values, when I value God Himself, it shows that I realize how vastly more important it is up there than it is down here. I recognize how much more it matters then than now. As a Christian, Steve's saying, my home, my citizenship is in heaven. This is not my home. I'm just here for a little while. I'm a sojourner. I'm here on this earth for just a short time. That's my home. And I will go home and I will be with my Father one day, but not yet. I'm living for there and I'm living for then. 
I'm focused on and anticipating my heavenly home rather than living for now and being consumed with anything that happens down here. Now, if you're not a Christian, and I don't assume that we all are, if you're not a Christian, it makes no sense for you to live like this. This is a passage that is, that is directed towards true followers of Christ. It doesn't make any sense for you to live for things of eternal value. It only makes sense for us to live for eternity or despise wealth or devotion to God when our eyes have seen the light, as Jesus says. The eye is, body of the, the, eye is the lamp of the, of the body. And when we, are, when we see light, it fills our body with light. 2 Corinthians, if you'd like to turn over there, I'm going to read a, a little lengthy passage here, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now he's going to start talking about the people who are lost. It says, the lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What is the light he's talking about here? He answers it. It's the glory of the gospel of Christ. Verse number four. And some have seen it, and they have been filled with light. Others are blinded to it, and they don't believe. Verses 6 and 7 then call this light our treasure. It says, we, verse 7, we have this treasure. What treasure? What he just said a minute ago, uh, a verse ago, to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're listening to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, you're beginning to understand these different mindsets living for the earth living for now, living for this life, or living for the next, living for eternal things. You understand these basically two different worldviews that are laid out in this passage. And if it's starting to lead you to, to find yourself on the wrong side of things, it may be that you need more than just a simple decision. More than just an attempt to, well, I'll switch my passions. I will switch my devotion. I will switch my service. Because it only makes sense once you have been filled with light. What you need is to see what others have seen. You need for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, to shine in your heart and to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What you need is the knowledge of Christ, who He is. 
Not just the Jesus of the Bible stories. Not just the Jesus that we sing about and we talk about and we pray to. We need the light of the gospel of Jesus to illuminate our hearts and bring change that only He can make. Now, it begins with the knowledge of who God is and who I am. I am a person without light. We are people who sit in sin and darkness. We have hearts that are hardened like a stone toward God. Our very nature rejects God's authority and we seek to live life our own way. Isaiah the prophet said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We want to serve mammon because we want to serve self. But because we have gone our own way, because we've rejected God's authority, we have become the enemy of God, deserving and awaiting His righteous wrath and judgment. But it was God's plan for Jesus, the light of the world, to leave heaven, to come to earth, and to become like His fallen creation. And yet, though He was like His fallen creation, He lived like no other creation could. He lived perfectly. He lived sinlessly. And He spent His life, as we're studying, as an illuminating light to the people who sat in darkness, revealing to them their need for a Savior, revealing to them their sinful condition and their need for salvation. And when the very people He came to save rejected Him, He gave His life as a substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy God's perfect justice. And the fact that just a few weeks ago we recognized Easter and and the Christ's resurrection and it was all about the fact that that was good enough to pay for sin. And now Jesus offers free salvation and new life to anyone who comes to Him by faith and repentance. Many years ago, a man named William Newell put it this way. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not the Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me He died on Calvary. By God's Word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Mercy there was great. And grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary. It's only then at Calvary that we get this knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it's only then that it makes sense to prioritize heaven over earth. Then it becomes clear how someone could turn their back on wealth and riches and all the cares of this life, to detach himself from the things of this earth and completely and wholeheartedly devote himself to God. If that's you, let me invite you to come and talk to somebody. Let us uh, uh, further explain this gospel of light to you and, and help you to understand what it means to have the knowledge of the Son of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us help you to understand what many of us have already seen. And again, if you've been coming to this church for many, many years, that doesn't mean anything but that you know more about the Bible than you did when you started. Have you been changed? Have you seen light? 
We find out by asking ourselves these questions. Because once you truly see the light, Jesus says your whole body, your whole being, will be filled with light. Then you can set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Well, it's still a struggle. No, no doubt about that. No one here is going to honestly say that they don't battle every day with the affections and the cares of this life. And there's no, and and and, you, and I can't say, and none of us can say that there's no temptation to chase after wealth and and other things. But when we set our eyes on the light by turning our eyes to Jesus, and the song says, "The things of earth grow strangely dim," the light of His glory and grace.